this would be Sci-Fi Saturday Night, and I would be Mercedes Lackey. Welcome aboard! We will begin a mass invasion. We will tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It will make us duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Good evening, everyone, unless it's morning, in which case, what the hell are you doing up so early? Welcome to a new year of Area 51 recordings of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Hi, we're the only podcast to guarantee to remain carbon neutral for the next 181 days. Only 181. At 182, I can't guarantee a damn thing. Uh, I am your vaccinated host, The Dome. This is episode 509, which means... Yeah, there are 508 sitting somewhere, um, which is kind of scary. Tonight, it's another mask-mandated semi-quarantine evening here in Area 51. And in this episode, more zombies in Seattle. And frankly, that's as it should be. Zombies belong in Seattle. And having spent time in Seattle, I can tell you, yeah, Mm -hmm. makes sense. Tonight in the Area 51 broadcast facility, sitting in in the help desk and snickersnack bar with me, it's Commander Cam, uh, just back uh, from seeing the musical Hamilton, which he went to see last week. Yep. So tell me, how was the story of George Hamilton? So I, I tell you, it was amazing, although they did, they did, I think, spend too much time on the movie uh, Love at First Bite. Um, you know, and, and his work with that. I wish they'd gotten more into his love affair with his wife, who's now his ex-wife, you know. But he's, you know, all in all, I think they did a really good job. And I, I think the best song, the one that still sticks with me right now is, man, I love this tan. Yeah, I know. There's, there's a whole ode to tans. And I oh, think yes. that, may be the, that may be the song that wins the Tony this year. For Hamilton, so I'm looking forward think to so. it. I think so. I think so. I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm going to have a choking fit now because I can. Um, you I'm go not... for that. <laughs> mm, excuse me. <laughs> you forgot to hit the button. Yeah, I know. I, I you, know, you know the little the, the I, choke button. <laughs> <laughs> no, the choke button is for something very very different. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm getting old. Anyway. Yes, you are. Uh, we're going to have a lady on who we've had on before. That's a great introduction. I should use that more often. You're amazing. But it won't work with guys. It'll only work for late. It'll only work for like half the guests. So if I start off every interview with, we're going to have a lady on that we've had before. It'll only work half the time. Um, 
and and she's a lady who who writes really cool stuff to paraphrase last time she threw us a book which was book four in a series of seven uh and we just kind of went wow we got thrown in in the middle of a tsunami uh and we loved it anyway but this time she gave us book one in a new series and and all i can say is thank you christy parish christy cherish thank you and hi christy hey how's it going Dom? Right. <laughs> aside from the fact that I, I choked through the intro it went great how are you <laughs> i'm doing well the intro was lovely um yeah you guys have had like a zombie double hitter we oh, have well. last last week we had uh on our last show we had mercedes lackey uh and god she was fun and and you've always been a fun guest for us too but tonight we're going to talk about uh, a, a book called The Voodoo Killings, which is, yeah. the, for, for a change, something different for you, the first book in a series. <laughs> and and it's a really fun, cool book. Uh, now, we've decided uh, that we're going to name tonight's podcast. Uh, Commander, would you like to tell her what we're going to name tonight's podcast? Oh God! Just a second. I gotta go double check what I, what I, what, I, what we put down. But yes, most definitely. <laughs> All righty. Yes. Drum roll, please. So. Best book featuring a zombie named Cameron. <laughs> and you miss and you misspelled Cameron, though. But I'll just we can fix that later. Yeah, I know I did. I did that yeah. purposely to see how long it would take you to figure that one out. Um. Now, the book, The Voodoo Killings, takes place in present-day Seattle, kind of. Yeah, a version of A version Seattle. of present-day Seattle. What, could, what we can construe as a version of present-day Seattle, uh, with a slight left to it. Uh, and and our, our main character is this wonderful lady by the name of Kincaid Strange. Yes. Where the hell did she come from? <laughs> she is one of the most amazing characters. I mean, now I've read, I think, three of your books thus far. She is the most amazing character you have ever come up with. And I adore her. Absolutely adore her Ditto. where did she come from um yeah well i'm glad you guys enjoyed you know in, in enjoyed my uh my version of a, a practitioner um i i actually started that novel um so voodoo killings has been out for a couple of years and i i listened to your feedback last time about the or, or, or the the discussions about the first book and i actually agree i i think it's nice even if you're on the third book in the series, if somebody isn't familiar with the series, I think it's always best to start with the first book. And then it's, it's just, difficult yeah. if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So when I was writing the voodoo killings, I initially, it was not going to be a novel. Uh, it was a short story challenge for zombie romance, zombie themed romance, like for, uh, for an anthology that a couple of my friends were doing. And um, I thought, 
what the hey, I'll, I'll give this a shot. And um, I, I started writing this, you know, thinking, how, how would I write a zombie romance? Just the concept of zombie romance is kind of like, you know, it, it, it intrigued me on how I could attempt to pull something like that off. It can and get icky. Yeah. It can get very icky. Yeah. Yeah. It can get a little creepy and icky and, and go directions you don't want it to go. Um, but so I thought to myself, well, you know, let's come up with some interesting characters and, and, you know, what if I, I, I guess the first premise I came up with is what if you had, um, you know, as a female lead for this hypothetical romance that never happened because I never, I ne it, it, it went a very different direction. I'm like, well, let's have somebody whose job it is to, you know, work with, work with the dead. Um, so a modern day kind of practitioner. And, you know, I started thinking, well, what kinds of things would a modern day practitioner really do? If there were such things as ghosts and zombies, what, you, you know, what, what would you do on a daily basis? And, um, what we came up with, or what I came up with, was that, you know, uh, what my brain came up with was that, well, you know, it'd be for, for petty things. Like, once the novelty wore off, it would be for will disputes. It would be for, you know, um, get me, you know, I, I need a zombie to buy me beer, get me my favorite rock star, um, you know, for a con. Like, it would be really petty stuff. And I, I thought that was a funny concept. Like, just having this practitioner who you know, deals with the dead on a daily basis, but it's, it's mundane stuff. After um, a while, it I all becomes to, kind of mundane. Yeah. And, and she has yeah. to put up with that. Yeah. You know, um, and, uh, but, but also kind of being this distasteful kind of, you know, industry. And then I thought, well, for a lead for this, what, what kind of a lead would we have? What if we had a, you know, what if we had a bit of a mystery and, you know, you had this zombie who doesn't, know why they're a zombie but let's get rid of all the icky virus stuff let's make this old school zombies where you know they're just raised raised from the dead it's kind of like a second life of a of a certain kind and um i i kind of fell in love with the idea of it being more of a mystery and a murder mystery and um i of course i never submitted that short story romance because the short story you know zombie romance never got written it turned into our murder mystery with um the practitioner who's got to put up with uh kincaid strange who's got to put up with you know um all of these odd requests throughout her day uh, and also try and solve a murder so i yeah it was a spark of an idea that went a very different direction okay but but that brings me to a couple of questions <clears throat> and i'm going to tiptoe around not giving you any spoilers because to 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 throw spoilers into the mix here would be a horrible thing because there are just so many goddamn easter eggs and reveals in this that it's just wonderful but you, the first thing that we find out is the murder and the murder is a guy by the name of Cameron White yes now now, Cameron White is an unauthorized zombie. Yes. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell is the difference between an authorized and an unauthorized zombie. And there's this whole explanation that Kincaid talks about of strands and this and that and the other. And 
So figure it out for me, please. <laughs> um, yeah. So so the whole the whole idea behind zombies in this zombies and ghosts in this world is practitioners in this sort of urban fantasy version of of Seattle. Um, ghosts and zombies exist, but they're not your viral and ghouls and and other such you know creatures that right later right right right. But um, you know. The, the whole the whole idea is that you know they're um it, it's kind of that second chance at at life so not everybody becomes a ghost um and zombies are tricky to pull off but it's it's this idea that you know you can stick around and zombies for the most part traditionally were in this again world universe uh, historically they were either enslaved to some degree as sort of the working dead and that happens too um in, in this world where you've got various practitioners who sort of keep their dead on leashes. Um, but the other idea was that, well, you know, zombies are kind of where you've had your ghost or your soul tied to this body uh, that's being preserved by, um, you know, magic and other sides. So it, uh -huh. it's not really part of the real world anymore. And it's, it's also not really part of the dead anymore. Um, you know, and you don't necessarily last forever as a zombie. You maybe get 300 odd years if you're really, you know, if your practitioner was really good. Um, but you sort of get this extension and, and that's kind of the appeal of zombieism is that, yeah, you it, it's not forever and they're not entirely sure what happens to you, your soul afterwards, but, you know, you get that extra 300 years. Um, and there's this sort of constant, there, there's sort of this um, thing that's happened in, in sort of the modern world where people are like, wait a minute, we've got these zombies who are basically have this semi-immortality. They're hanging around for hundreds of years. This isn't cool and we should make this illegal. And, you know, you always have in society, this kind of a, a trend is you've always got these either uber religious or uber, you know, politics and policies are always changing. And in this particular world, they're at a point where people have said, wait a minute, no more of these, you know, 300 year um, zombies, like for example, Li Ling in, in the series, they're not okay anymore. We're making those illegal, but it's okay to do something kind of like a summoning. So, you know, a, um, a, a zombie that's going to last a really long time in, in the world has um, in, the shorthand in the novel that Kincaid uses as a five-line zombie. So their ghost, their soul is really tied to that body. It's not going anywhere. But there's kind of a almost like a cheap trick that, they, that practitioners can use. Say you just need somebody for a will. You know, say there's a will dispute or you got to figure out where uncle roger buried all the gold coins you know something along those lines and um well what you can do is you don't have to tie the person to the body forever you can kind of do this pseudo summoning where you just bring them back for a little bit and uh, the practitioner brings them back for a little bit and they're there kind of temporarily and you can ask them the questions and 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 then they go they um they're back to being a ghost again and those are called called um in the book, they're called four line zombies because it's it's more of a possession. It's not really making a zombie in that world. And those are still still legal. And that's where a lot of the pettiness comes in, you know, sort of the 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 lawyers who need somebody for a will dispute. But actually making a zombie who's going to last around for a long time, that's 
that's illegal. And um, Kincaid's really good at it. Um, but she also doesn't want to be arrested. And um, that, that's kind of where her career is at at this point, is that her, her kind of lucrative career of, um, you know, doing these five-line zombies and doing this, you know, sort of high-level practicing, she can't do it anymore. She's kind of tap dancing right on the edge of the law right there and and living, living half in in the real world and half in this this other place called the underground city, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, And I want to talk about that as well. But before we get to that, there's another part of the zombies that I want to talk about. Yeah, because not only are there four line zombies and five line zombies, but you've imbued the zombies with the ability to stay sentient to a degree in a way that zombies used to be able to by eating brains. Mm-hmm. Now, yes. now, what I love, uh, which I thought was absolutely hilarious uh, with, with Cameron White, is that he can't stand the taste of it. <laughs> and it's like, you know, he, he's being told by Kincaid, look, you got to drink this or you're going to go stupid on me. Yeah. Yeah. And he drinks it and he's just gagging and retching and going, I, I can't do this. And then as he drinks it, he realizes that he's getting his faculties back, but he doesn't know why. <clears throat> so there's this constant fight within him and this constant fight fight within zombies and this there's just so many things going on at once all the time and you don't realize it except as a reader you're just being constantly bombarded with all of these fights going on within all of these entities constantly is constantly warring and it's wonderful it's you're being bombarded as a reader and it's great I don't think I've been bombarded by a book like this in a long time where I've enjoyed it quite so much. I I guess whenever whenever I, I, I try and design something, like a, a zombie in this case, and, and you're, you're actually touching on a lot of the things I was tr- that, that are res- a result of what I was trying to do. Um, you know, there's always a cost. And this this is something that that plays heavily with with Kincaid is that you know every action's got a cost every um, every cool thing you know that seems like a, a you know it, something like you know being able to live for three hundred years seems awesome but there's a lot of costs associated with it um, it's it's not a golden ticket um, you know and uh, it's it's um, you see it in the book played out with, with of course, the dead quite a bit. So with right, um, another right, one of the characters right. um, that come, that's quite early, so it's not a spoiler, but Nathan Cade, who's her ghost roommate, um, you know, and he's, he's of course, a ghost who just kind of hangs out. But but there's a cost to that, too, you know, to, um, I, you know, there's a cost to him being able to do that. There's a, a, a cost, um, you know, psychologically to, you know, living part in and part out of, of, um, of the world of the living. It's, um, and those are fun to play with. Um, and, and they're kind of like a natural point of conflict in books. Yeah. Even though I've got a broader, a broader conflict going on. Well, 
everybody's dealing with their lives and, you know, much like we are, you know, um, people are dealing with their lives and the good things and the bad things. So it's, it's, um, I, I, I try and blend that into any of the magic or monsters that I'm, I'm making. You know, I don't, I don't want to play, let's compare and contrast here. Uh, but I'm going to, (laughs) uh, Last last week, and, and Cam, did did what Christie just said ring a bell with you in any way? With what you we heard last what, week, you mean what I was going to say about you know, which was there's no such thing as a free lunch, or yeah. there is no free lunch. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, la- last week, uh, when we had Mercedes Lackey on, and she was talking about how her characters, uh, when she put them together, she had to in order to help them be real. Uh, every action has consequence. And in order yeah. to do it, she used Heinlein's Tanstaffel. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Every action, every every reality has consequence. Even magic. Nobody, nobody, magic is not free. No. Never. So whatever you never, do has never. consequence and, and every action has consequential reality to it. And, you know, at as we were talking to her last week, she really brought it home to me that even in the most oddly weird fantasy books, she did that. And then I got to your book this week, and here you are at the whole other end of the spectrum, writing a a grunge zombie novel, and you're doing the exact same thing. And, and because you're putting the characters through that same kind of meat grinder of reality, it just, it, it floored me. It, it's, it forces the, the read the reader to be, to work. And it's wonderful. The reader can't be a passive, uh, I, I, I'm not even sure how to describe it. Other, other than the reader cannot be passive and, and enjoy this. The reader has to be actively involved in watching what's going on and being a part of it. And, oh, my God, I, I, I haven't had this much fun with a book since last week, which doesn't sound like much, but it really is. <laughs> and Mer- one of the things Lackey is, is a master of, of you know, um, storytelling so what? no and I, I i think that i, I said mercedes, mercedes lack is is of course a, a master of storytelling and i i think that just that succinct point of you know there's no such thing as a free lunch there's got to be a cost it's it's a really brilliant piece of writing advice like if the, every now and again you hear really good pieces of writing advice not not the stuff about you know oh you know make sure you don't use too many words with ly and 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 that sort of thing or always you know, write fifteen hundred words a day that's bullshit there you go yeah there's no yeah. such thing as a but free lunch babe there it is that's that's a much better piece that like that's not for me as as a writer those are the kinds of bits bits of advice that I think really helped me um, when I was starting off plotting out my very first novels was was things like that you know like there's there's no such thing as a free lunch it's um you know and it helps i think when you plug something like that in on a subconscious level i think it really helps you um figure out 
the other things besides the plot that your story needs, those those bits of conflict that, that really help, um, you know, help the story along and keep it engaging when there isn't big action happening that's central to the the main plot. And it, it keeps the main plot interesting. Yeah. Anyway. And one of the things I really love, because you, you're talking about developing, is some of these characters, and I'm going to skip one of them. I took notes on the, all these characters, but one I'm going to skip because he's kind of very key and very spoilerish, which is Maximilian Odo. Did I oh, say yeah. that last name correct? Yeah. So I'm just going to skip over him, but, he, you know, well-developed is two characters you mentioned, which is Lee Ling and Nathan Cade. I'm actually oh, Lee Ling's Nathan a wonderful because, character. God, oh, Lee yeah. Ling is amazing. Well, what was she? She was a... A, a Chinese courtesan came over from China um, and was working in the uh, working in the courtesan trade in Seattle until she gets uh, you know cut up by a uh, a uh, Jack the Ripper type. And this is just in the first few pages of the book, so I'm not really revealing anything. <laughs> no, you, you're not. You know, that's that's the know, first uh, chapter. <laughs> yeah, something like that. First few chapters, we learn about that. And this is a very deep character. You've already given us a lifetime worth of information within the first hundred pages or less about Lee Ling and developed a really interesting character there that she's a zombie. It's been alive for a very long time. And, she, you know, when she was rebuilt, her face is still is still cut up. But she is a she's a five. She's a, a five zombie. But what I loved was was meeting Nate. The roommate, because we, we we have glazed over a small point to. Oh, engage. yeah, that's true. That's true. And I think we really do need to bring this in because I think seriously, people we would enjoy this. And this is the fact that she makes her money now off of Nate, the roommate, because Nate just happens to be Nathan Cade, one of the biggest grunge stars of the 90s. The star, the lead singer of Dead Men Tell No Tales, spelled T-A-L-E-S, one of the greatest grunge bands of all time. And Nate is not standing here staring at me, forcing me to say that, nor is he forcing me to say that, you know, how, how grunge was the greatest influence on modern music that has ever existed or any other things he wants me to say. But this is such an amazing character. He, he just there's so much depth. He's. He's got an ex-girlfriend that's now dating the uh, dating the drummer of his band or married to, I think, at this point. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, yeah. hmm, I wonder where Christy got the idea for this. <laughs> I, you know, the, the whole thing. So, so the obvious, yes. Yeah, so when the book when the book came out, when I was writing it, there were you know sort of the haha comparisons, and I I think. I think that would have made it a much less interesting character. Um, what I was going for, because I was in high school during the 90s, so I saw that whole, you know, grunge music, um, grunge culture, mu you know, movement that came out of the West Coast, because uh, I was on the West Coast in high school. And so for me, there, there were so many, you know, Nathan's kind of a, uh, he, he's not just... He, he's kind of a symbol of that that era. He's his own character. Um, uh, you know, he he he's not based off of an individual. He's he's based off of just a feeling from that that era. The I don't care. You know, my parents screwed 
up and I don't want to go to work with us. You know, I don't want to go to go to work, put on a suit and go to work. And, you know, there, there was just a very sort of counterculture thing that came out of the 90s. And I, you know, that's what I was trying to tap into was just that that sort of feeling um, so that, you know, Nate, Nate's kind of his own person. Um, but yes, there's, no, there, there were a fair number of famous grunge stars at that time who I think, um, y- y- you know, there, there was, uh, quite a few of them, but yeah, he's not based off of any individual. Right. And, and, but you can tell, you can, you can, you can, as you read him, you can go, well, it looks like she might've taken someone from here and something from here and something from here, but yeah, there's not a specific one. But one of the things I love, and it goes back to that no such thing as a free lunch, is, you know, the ghosts can't become they, they can't they can't manifest off that puts a strain on their very existence. And yet this this character you've created after we get the ha ha's out of the way is still obsessed with this this woman and her life, this woman that used to be his girlfriend, his wife, who he's no longer can have. And he because he's he's still to a degree obsessed with that. He's still to a degree obsessed with the fame he used to have because he still wants to go out there and he still wants to do these things. Even though I think sometimes he he, he I my impression of him is that he he doth protest too much, but I think he does from time to time enjoy talking with these people, getting do doing these seances which make money for a strange, but that. Yeah. He, that he it allows him to get back out there and be relevant and still be active in this world that he enjoyed so much. So it's it's yeah. it's very interesting. Once you get past the joke, the outer joke, you find that there's a deeper character there, and I and that's what I really loved. I think I think even though yes, there is a character with the same name as me. <laughs> um, there is a sorry, knock my headphones off. I'm swinging my hands around. Um, is that there? It Nathan is actually my favorite character in the book. He's he's one of my favorite. I I love writing all of them. I I love like writing Leeling because I I I, I had a chance to make her very unapologetic. Um, because of course she's lived through this huge amount of 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 time. Uh, Nathan was really interesting because there's um there's kind of a tragic component to him he, he's definitely comedic relief in in the book and and he's a blast to write um but there's this tragic thing about ghosts and and that Kincaid kind of touches on and it's it's this idea that you know ghosts don't change um ghosts are are you know once once they're dead yeah they're they're hanging around but they they're not like people anymore they can't they can't change they can't really learn they're they're themselves for the rest of their existence. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's it. They, they're not going to really learn anything. They keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And Kincaid kind of sort of, you know, is, you know, of course she, she, she loves a roommate, but you know, she is sort of, I, I guess she kind of just resigns herself to the fact that he's, gonna keep repeating the same mistakes, whether it's chasing his, his ex um, or looking up, checking up on his ex, I think is the best the best way to phrase that. And yep. there's, you know, um, some of that may play into book two, but, um, uh, but yeah, like, I mean, there's Nate for being, Nate's been a 20 something rock star for 
20 years at this point, and he's still the same person as, you know, he was the day he died. He, he, he will never change. Um, and there's only so much he can, there's a scene later on in the book that I, I wrote specifically to illustrate it. And I can't say details about it because it's, um, it would be a huge spoiler, but, um, it, it kind of culminates in showing that Nate just doesn't really have any influence on the real world anymore. And despite his sort yeah. of funny disposition and his, his, you know, sort of, uh, devil may care and I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to be a young thing for the rest of my life and I'm going to sit here and play video games and, you know, complain about going up to the university to work. There's that tragic component that he just doesn't, he can't affect, he can't affect change on the world anymore. Um, well, and, you, you, and I enjoyed that. Because you, even, even in a small way, you, you point this out and, and you mentioned that he likes playing video games. One of the things that Kincaid says at one point um, is I forgot who she was talking to at the time. I think it was uh, maybe she was, she was talking to herself. I can never remember, but it was he was he was thinking about the fact that he loves playing these video games. But she also says to herself, she says, if they ever change that controller drastically, he won't be able to play anymore. And it kind of subtly points out that this character can never change. He can never adapt, never grow, not even in the simplest way of. You know, well, here's the new PlayStation controller, completely different. He's not yeah. going to be able to use it. And that just illustrates in a tiny little way how this character, and he did, like you said, he sees this humorous character first, but there's a tragedy in there because he can never change and he can never grow like everyone else. And I think that's what I like about him. I think it's just because there's yeah. a humor and there's this devil may care, but he just can, he can, ne he can never change. And I think somewhere inside, you know, he might even know it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, it, again, it, it comes down to that, that sort of rule of fiction. There, there's no free lunch. Mm -hmm. Which leads us to the dual, the duality settings <clears throat> that you put in Seattle. You have an upper Seattle, which is the, yeah. the, the main city. And then you have some place called the underground city, which yeah. is where where the wild things are, <laughs> for lack of a better yes. term. <clears throat> yep. How did you figure this part out? Where did when when did it come to you that this is how you were going to do this, and how did what what did this look like in your mind when you first started to put this together? Yeah, I so. The whole thing, so the underground city does actually exist in Seattle, and there's like I think there's one in San Francisco, and there's one in Oregon for sure, um, where they've got you know where they had these sort of wharf towns, and as various things happened over you know in in Seattle it was a massive fire, um, which I I think I touch on briefly in the book where they they talk about sort of the history of of how the underground city. The real one was um, was started, but there was a fire um, in this this sort of wharf docked town that sort of stretched out where you'd have the tidal flats come in, you'd have things up on stilts, and then the tide would go out and take all the refuse with it, um, you know. And you have this fire that burned it down. And what people did was they decided to build on top of the original city, uh, the city that was that was left, and um, 
as they started building on top, you know, people were still living and working in, you know, some of the buildings that were left below. Um, but, but slowly, of course, everybody kind of moved up into the new city. Um, and you had over, gosh, over an entire century, I guess, more than that now. Um, although it's a tourist, they're tourist spots and sort of archaeology, you know, sort of modern archaeology spots now. But um, I, you, you know, you had people then start to use the underground city, um, these sort of forgotten and hidden, built, hidden buildings for, you know, at one point they were drug dens in Oregon. They used them for, for, for smuggling uh, in Seattle. They used them for, for smuggling people. Um, uh, you know, so you have these just fascinating uses for these, these old city um underground cities um so some of the stories out of the oh no i'm thinking um so both so both oregon and seattle had these these underground cities and it was oregon um that was had some of the most interesting ideas about their their underground city and i kind of used it in in the um the original seattle one too Book three ends up being set in the Oregon underground, the Portland underground city. And um, so I had some of the, the history and the thoughts kind of percolating in the background. So one of the things that, that used to happen on, on the West Coast was in, um, to give you an idea of what these underground cities would have been used for, is um, for getting sailors for boats. So you had... Um, you, you had one particular route, uh, which was to Shanghai, so to the Orient, and nobody wanted to go on it because it took three years. Chances are you would die. Um, sailors would get to Oregon, and that was the last stop. Oregon was the last stop before the boats went to Shanghai. And so you had all the sailors leave. And so they had this real shortage of workers. So what do you do to get, um, you know, to get workers for your boat? Well, what happened was, was, Oregon as well, by this point, had an underground city. So they had built on top of the original city that had been, you know, wharfs and docks and such. And then people had had also excavated, um, you know, tunnels underneath. And so some industrious people realized, hey, I've got this old building right underneath my bar or my, you know, um, my uh, my saloon or, or whatever. And um isn't that interesting? There are also some tunnels leading out to the water. So what they would do is they would pick their targets, you know, loggers who would come in from the coast and they would, um, you know, they figure out, does this person have any friends? Is anybody going to look for them? Nope. Okay. Drug him. They would have trap doors, which would then drop out uh, and the person would fall through and uh, they'd either end up in a cage or they would before they, they'd wake up in a cage with other people who had met similar fates, or they would wake up on the boat and it would be halfway out to sea. Um, so that was one of the underground cities. Seattle also had a, a very, I like to call them damnably creative bunch who, who settled the place. Um, so Seattle at the time um, with their, I, I guess with their, their sort of city, um, uh, that, you know, was around this time, this, uh, the original city before you had the underground. So this is who populate the underground city in Kincaid Strange. So the original, some of the original, you know, settlers who were, um, who are now zombies, for example, like Li Ling. And so 
you, you know, can cable hear these stories about how there was a medical building. And um, uh, so, so first off, to give you an idea of the, the tone in Seattle at the time, uh, turn, you know, that sort of uh, late 1800s, um, there were one of the most populous jobs were seamstresses. Um, and of course, seamstress was code for prostitute at the time, but they were also floating the city's taxes. So you had seamstress little signs everywhere. Um, but the other thing was that you had, um, you know, Seattle was trying to kind of become more, I guess, modern and turn themselves into a city. So you had a medical building, but they needed bodies. And so you've, you've got these sort of dual things happening at the time where you, you've got, you know, this medical school building and you've got these, um, you know, sort of less law abiding category of, um, of people. And, um, so people are like, well, wow, they're going to pay $10 a body up at the medical school. This is amazing. Where are we going to find some bodies? And um, so what would happen is, so the, the first rule that had to be, had to come down was that there couldn't be any gunshots, knife wounds, strangulation marks, uh, and various other things, because um, that's, of course, what was, what was being delivered to the medical school, um, you know, were, were these bodies. And uh, the other point that, um, uh, you know, so then it didn't stop people, but they started getting a lot of drowning victims. And again, like had been happening in Oregon, what would happen is, is somebody would go into a bar. Oh my goodness. Do, does this person have a family? Well, is anybody going to go looking for them? No. Um, they get a very powerful drink and they may or may not wake up tied to the wharf, uh, with the tide coming in. Uh, because the medical school was still accepting drownings. Um, and, and so this, I, I've sort of gone into sort of stories from the, his, from the history of these two cities when the underground cities were either being built um, or, you know, um, uh, when the original city was there uh, still, when that original area that would be covered is still there. But these are all the kind of stories that I went, this is amazing. What if these people were still living in this underground city, this covered part of Seattle? What would that look like? You know, all these people who who were doing these horrible things out of necessity during, you know, these, these uh, frontier days. What does an underground city look like that's filled with, you know, sort of the, the dead and the undead of that era. Um, and th that's where it came from. Long but, then you've, but, but then you've taken them and you've mixed them in with the high thriving arts community at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, with. Um, you crazy lady, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. OK. <laughs> I, I would uh, say that the underground is not necessarily uh, the underground city itself is not necessarily in itself. Um, a high thriving arts community it is certainly a thriving community. Um, and it, it certainly integrates with the artistic with the artistic sort of Seattle world um, through various other characters. But yeah, I, I kind of feel like the underground city is its own frontier thing, this strange transport that just has no rhyme or reason because it's not really alive anymore. So so here's the deal. Um, 
We really like this book a lot. It's a lot of fun. It's got some great characters. It's got a great story. It's got a great theme. It's got a great setting. Uh, it's got a great story arc. It's got a story arc uh, of characters that extends far beyond the first book. Uh, and frankly, we can't wait to wait to read the second book. And I'm told there's a third book. And Lord knows how many others. And I don't care because that sounds good <laughs> to me. Um, Christy writes some really, really cool stuff, which we've already we already knew before this book. Uh, but now we know um, even even better, even more. And uh, I can't thank you enough for for being here. It's serendipitous in any number of ways. The name of the book is The Voodoo Killings. The name of the writer is the amazing, the incredibly talented Christy Cherish. Thank you for joining us tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Oh, thanks for having me back, guys. This is, of course, fun as always. It's always great to chat with you, too. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is made possible with the support of Granite Con and Double Midnight Comics, Plastic City Comic Con, the Upper Valley Comic Expo, Dreamforge Anvil and Dreamforge Magazine, and Comic Art House. If you're looking for a great gift idea, may we suggest Sci-Fi Saturday Night's anthology, My Peculiar Family, available on Amazon. The audiobook is also available on Audible. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. Check out all of his amazing work at robwattsonline.com. Our outro music was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their discography is available on Bandcamp. Thank you so much, Jojo. This is Dome saying shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. So unless it's daytime, good night, everyone. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night, everybody. Yay!